Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, this morning I'll be reading verses 15 through 20. Please give your attention to God's word. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, during the month of January and here also during the month of February, we've been looking at what the Bible tells us about the unique, supernatural, spirit-given fellowship of the true church of Jesus Christ. We've been looking at it from many different angles. But one of the things that I would hope would be obvious is that if Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, and if he did come to earth, add to his divine nature a human nature, live a perfect life, and then go to the cross, and there on the cross, pay for all the sins of those who trust in him, past, present, and future. Past sins, present sins, future sins. If he paid for them all at the cross, then one way in which our fellowship, which is based on that message of the cross, should be different from every other fellowship that exists out there in the world, It's how we deal with the sins of one another. How we respond to each other's sins has to be radically different because Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and he did what God sent him here to do, which was to deal with sin once and for all. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If that is our creed, if that is the basis of our fellowship together, if we are in Christ together, then the way we relate to one another ought to stand apart from the way that fellowships out there in the world relate to one another. I was thinking about this quite a bit this past week as we witnessed what happened in the media, the social media and the news media and popular media in terms of the NBC anchorman Brian Williams. Striking to me that within a period of days, even hours, he went from being one of the most popular and successful journalists in the world to being the butt of a million jokes, humiliated, and probably without a job. Stunning how quickly he fell. And I don't want to make light of his deceptions, especially in light of the job that he had. But just let me ask you, how many of us would like to have aired out before the entire world the times in which we have exaggerated about things about ourselves in order to impress others. He was without a sin, cast the first stone. 
It's interesting, as I was watching this happen, I also, at the same time, earlier this week, read an article in the New York Times, fascinating article, about what the author called public shaming that has happened in our culture as a result of social media and the role that social media is playing in our lives now. And he bases the article, he basically, the whole article revolves around one incident that happened about a year ago. Maybe you heard about it, I remember hearing about it at the time. That there was a young, successful, professional woman who decided to go on a vacation to South Africa. And while she was sitting in the airport waiting for her flight to take off, she was on Twitter and doing what a lot of people do to kill time in the airport, and she was sending out kind of snarky tweets to her friends to, just to get a laugh or two. She sent out a whole series of them. But the very last tweet that she sent out over her phone before she got on the flight and had to turn her phone off was this one. This is what it said, word for word. Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. She sent that out just to be funny. Sounds racist, open to some interpretation. She turned her phone off, got on the flight to fly to South Africa. Eleven hours later, she gets off the flight, turns her phone back on, and the first thing she sees is a tweet from one of her friends, or not a tweet, but a, a text from one of her friends that says, you have the number one worldwide trend on Twitter. What's interesting is that this young woman only had 170 followers on her Twitter account, but somebody retweeted her, and it was picked up by a blogger who had tens of thousands of followers, and that blogger retweeted it, and then it spread like wildfire. Within 11 hours, everybody around the world knew about it, and matter of fact, there was somebody there to take a picture of her when she landed. She was that well-known. The guy writing the article, what he did, which was fascinating, he said, I want to see what happened to this woman. Because I know I didn't hear anything more about her after this. I mean, there were tens of thousands of tweets sent to say how awful she was, to, to, to condemn her, to disgrace her, to humiliate her, to make her a butt of jokes. It all happened within a period of hours. Well, this guy tracks her down. Actually tracked her down three weeks later and then tracked her down again a few, uh, a few weeks ago. And he wrote this article about her, and basically his desire was to say, what happened to her? Because these people, you know, we hear about them all over the place, and then all of a sudden they disappear. What happened to her? What happened to her was she had to cut short her, I think, two weeks vacation in South Africa because people were making threats against her there. She came home, and within three weeks she lost her job. For the next few weeks and months, she couldn't leave her apartment. She was so humiliated and so depressed over what had happened. Finally, she went away for a number of weeks to live in another country where the inter- there was no internet, just to get away from it all. And now she's back living in New York City, but as he met with her a few weeks ago, she's still trying to put her life back together. The writer, and I encourage you to read the article, look it up online, he compares it, interestingly, to the public shamings that we used to have like 200 years ago, where somebody would commit a crime or, or some social uh, crime, and, and, and they would put them in stocks out in the public square for people to walk by and spit on and throw things at and to publicly shame them. Or if it was a worse offense, they would actually whip, you know, time to a post and whip them publicly. They said, we're doing the same thing. Now we have social media shaming. And, we just, and, and what's, what's disturbing is how gleeful people are in carrying it out. 
And the other thing you pointed out I thought was interesting is the infractions are much more trivial than what they were 200 years ago. The kind of things that would get you in the stocks or get you a public whipping 200 years ago, things we're talking about now are, are much smaller. Now, I don't bring all that up to make some kind of public pronouncement about it. I'm trying to get back to my main point here, which is that's how the world deals with mistakes and sins. It's got to be different in the church. If we believe the gospel is true, it's got to be different in here. If we are who Christ has said we are, if he is who he said he was and he did what he said he did, he accomplished what he said he accomplished, and we are who he says we are, if we are his people saved by grace alone, then how should our response be different than the way the world responds to each other? I think what we'll find out as we go to Scripture is it's neither a let live and let live, which that's one of the reactions of the world. Uh, you know, you do what you're gonna, you want to do, doesn't matter to me, I'll live my life as long as you don't step on my toes, I'm going to live and let live. Or, I'm going to get a lot of vicarious pleasure out of condemning you and punishing you for what you've done wrong. We're going to look here in this passage in Matthew 18 at a sequence that describes a biblical response to the sins of others in the church. A sequence that our Lord lays out for us. And what we see here are actually the very first outward steps, the first observable steps that you're to take in response to the sin of another Christian. So I'm going to actually step back a little bit and look at the broader context of Scripture because I think Jesus is assuming that a couple of things have taken place inwardly before you take this outward step to deal with the sin. In other words, when he says, go to the other, to the believer, to the offender, he's actually assuming you've done a couple other things first. And I want to talk about those first because you get this from the rest of Scripture. The first thing you do, the first step of an internal step, something in your mind, something in your heart that must take place before you take an outward step of going to the offender, is the first one is you need to examine your own heart. You need to examine your own heart. Earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, some people hear that from the mouth of our Lord, and they say, Oh, that's a live and let live verse, isn't it? You know, you you worry about your own sin. Don't worry about anybody else's sin. That's between them and God or them and other people. You, you just worry about your own sin. Is that what he's saying? No, he says, take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's a good thing. That's a good goal. But do this first. Deal with the log that's in your own eye. Then you can go and help. He's assuming that you actually, after you've done this first step, you will go and help your brother with the speck that's in his eye. But don't go about doing that until you first dealt with the log that's in your own eye. This passage doesn't forbid us from pointing out sins in others. But it says we must not confront others about their sin until we've been willing to look at our own first. Surgeons, before they do eye surgery, decontaminate. They clean up. They they get rid of all the germs as best possible they can on themselves so that they don't bring any infection, any germs into the healing process. And so that's what we must do spiritually. Reminds me of that one time when Jesus was walking through the crowds and he had his disciples around him and somebody in the crowd shouts out to him and says to him 
Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's a conflict. He was accusing his brother of committing sin against him. And he wanted Jesus to mediate and say who was right and who was wrong. Remember how Jesus responded? He said, be on your guard against all covetousness. He says, before you worry about solving this issue of an inheritance between you and your brother, you deal with your own issue of covetousness. Once you've dealt with that, then you can sit down and try to work out this conflict with your brother. And this is so important, especially in this social media culture we live in. The ease of contact, the the quick responses we're able to give through social media and texting and and email, it's so easy, it's, it's so quick for us to just give a response to everything and what the Lord would have us do if we're angered with our brother or sister, if we were offended by something our brother or sister has done, don't rush off to give a response to it. Stop. Get down on your knees before the Lord and say, Lord, show me the log in my own eye. Show me the sin issues in my own heart. Show me how I've contributed to this problem. Show me, most importantly, the pride in my own heart. I mean, think about Ask yourself these questions as you're praying and confessing your own sins. Say to yourself, why does this sin upset me? Reminds me, somebody said to me once, very convicting words, they said, prideful people only bother prideful people. It's true, isn't it? Prideful people really bother you because it really provokes your own pride. And so if your brother or sister sins against you pridefully, you better get on your knees and say, you know, one of the reasons this bothers me so much is it's conflicting with my pride. Ask yourself the question, what sins did I commit that may have contributed to this situation? And ultimately, what do I want from this? What am I looking for? What am I seeking from my brother or sister who's offended me? Do I want vindication? Do I want vengeance? Do I want a pound of flesh? Or do I want the church to be protected, the glory and honor of Christ's name to be protected, and this brother to be delivered from his sin and the effects of it. Is that really what I want? If you first, before you do anything else, get on your knees before the Lord and confess your own sin, it'll suck the pride right out of you. It'll point and orient you towards the cross and remind you of what Christ has done for you, and it'll prepare you to, in humility to speak the truth in love to your brother and sister. What I'm saying to you is, especially when you're emotional about being offended by another person's sin, don't trust your own heart. Your heart is deceitful. Your heart will lead you to respond pridefully and in a damaging way in the situation. Confess your own sin first. If you begin your conversation with the offender by first of all confessing your own sin that may have contributed to the situation or at least into your response to the situation, even if your fault is only 10% of the whole or 5% of the whole, that's going to put the whole conversation in another light and it's going to help to bring down the defenses on the part of the offender and, and provide an opening. So the first step is to examine your own heart. The second step, and again, before what Jesus lays out here for us in terms of outward concrete steps, the second internal step in the heart is to consider overlooking the offender's sin. Consider just overlooking it, not bringing it up at all. In Matthew 7, Jesus, earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Judge not that lest you be judged. 
Judge not that you not be not judged. And some people take that to mean that we should, you know, back to the, old, the way the world does it, you know, live and let live. You know, I'm not, I'm not supposed to make any discernment about your life. I'm just worried about my own issues. But that contradicts all the rest of Scripture. Obviously, in Scripture, we're to make discernments about the behaviors of other people. We have to do that to live as disciples in this world. But what it means is that when you see sin in a, in a brother or sister's life, when you see that sin, don't put yourself up on the, behind the bar of justice. Don't put yourself up in the judge's chair. You're not the judge of that sinner. You're not the one who condemns and punishes the wrongdoer. That's God's role. Don't put yourself in God's role. You're not the judge of that sinner. And he may pardon or he may punish, but that's his role as the one true judge. You're not their judge. And since you're not the other person's judge, you have the option of overlooking their sin. A judge can't do that. A judge must punish sin. God must punish sin, either in hell for eternity or he must punish it at the cross where his son bore the sins of the church. But God must punish sin because he's the judge, but you're not the judge, so you don't have to punish sin. You don't even have to bring it up. You have the option of overlooking that sin. If that's what's best for God's glory, if that's what's best for the peace of the church, if that's what's best for the offender's good and what's best for your relationship with the offender. And that's something to be seriously considered before you go and take the first step that Jesus mentions here. Consider overlooking it. Proverbs 19 verse 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. It's to your glory. It's something to your credit. It's something to be commended if you're willing to overlook an offense, if that's what's best for the entire picture. Overlooking the sin, let me be clear though, overlooking the sin doesn't mean continuing to grind your teeth about it. Doesn't mean stuffing it down deep in your memory or your heart, holding on to it, and every time you think of it, just getting angrier and angrier and more and more bitter. That's not overlooking it at all. It also doesn't mean filing it away for future reference so that when the person does the same thing down the road, you can now double the the response to it because you've been holding on to that offense. It means letting it go. Really, turning it over to the Lord and say that's between him and the Lord and for the best of everyone involved, it's best that I just overlook this. It means choosing to forgive that sin even when the offender doesn't acknowledge it, and that's really hard. But if you're not the judge, you don't require that, do you? When is a sin too serious to overlook, then? How do you make the decision whether the sin should be overlooked or not? Well, it's not always just taking the easy way out. Sometimes it's hard. You need to do the hard thing. Sometimes you need to confront Ken Sandy, uh, probably many of you recognize the name, he's the one who really started and oversaw the Peacemakers um, ministry for many years, and he wrote a book called The Peacemaker, which I highly recommend if you're wrestling with these issues in your own life. In that book, he, he lists four questions to ask yourself to determine whether the sin that your brother or sister has committed is worthy to be, or should be confronted or should be overlooked. He says, it should not be overlooked if the honor and glory of God is at stake in the situation. In other words, if Christ's name will be sullied or, or stained or his rep, Christ's reputation will be harmed by you not speaking up and confronting your brother or sister about that sin. When the sin is damaging to your relationship with the offender, it should not be overlooked. If this is something that's going to make you 
pull away from your brother or sister because of it, is something that's going to make your relationship with them broken, then you should deal with it. You shouldn't just let it go. When the sin is harming other people, if you don't speak up, you may be able to overlook it, but you know it's going to harm other people, then you shouldn't overlook it. And the fourth area, he says, is when sin is seriously harming the offender. When you may be able to overlook it, overlook it, it may not be harming somebody else, but it's harming the offender, and out of love for that offender, you need to confront them with it. But just think about it. If you were to only confront sin publicly, you know, I mean, one-to-one, when you were only to go to a brother who sinned against you when it meets those four criteria, that's probably going to eliminate half of the potential conflict in your life. There's probably many more times that we should just overlook the sin, forgive it, without requiring the person to acknowledge it than we do. Okay, those are the inward steps you take that Jesus assumes you've taken before he comes to the step he mentions here in verse 15. And that's when you go to the one who has offended you. Verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Do you notice there, if your brother or sister in Christ has sinned against you, has offended you with their sin, you've got two options and two options only. One is to overlook it and forgive it and put it away as far as east is from west in terms of asking them to, to, respond, you know, to, re, to, to be punished for it or to reply to you for it. You, for, you, you let it go. You overlook it. That's your first option. The only other option you have is to go to him alone and talk to him about it. We always think we have a third option. We always think we have the option, and I'll tell you, it is by far the most popular option, and it's not even an option that Jesus gives us, which is to go find somebody who agrees with you, who likes you, who's going to side with you, and tell them all about what this brother or sister did, and let them, you know, just bask in them telling you, boy, you should really be mad about that. Yeah, they're an awful person. I can't believe they did that. That's the option we choose most of the time. And Jesus doesn't give it as an option because it's gossip. And the Lord hates gossip. He hates it. He hates it because it's the most destructive option. It's the one that ruins the church. It's the one that divides the church. It's the one that breaks relationships. It's the one that that totally destroys trust, which is the basis of any relationship. Overlook the sin or go to the person in love and gentleness and humility and talk to them about it. That's the only two options you have. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Now, I will admit that some of us, because of the personality that God gave us, we find it easier to go to a brother and talk to them about their sin than others of us do. Some of us find it very difficult. And actually, if you're one of those people who finds it relatively easy to do, be very, very careful. Very, very careful. Because the ones who find it easy are too often motivated by pride or judgmentalism. Matter of fact, Ken Sandy in his book says, if anyone who is eager to go and show a brother his sin is probably disqualified from doing so. But ultimately, if you've taken those first two inward steps of considering your own sin and considering overlooking it, and you've decided that because of the cross of Christ and because of the good of the body of Christ and because of the good of the sinner, you need to go and talk to them. If that's where you are, then it's ultimately selfish and unloving for you not to go and talk to them. 
It's ultimately selfish and unloving. Patrick Lencioni is a a writer who writes a lot of leadership books. And he's writing this to leaders, but it absolutely applies to Christians within the church as well. Listen to what he says. Accountability is about having the courage to confront someone about their deficiencies and then to stand in the moment and deal with their reaction, which may not be pleasant. It is a selfless act, one rooted in love. To hold someone accountable is to care about them enough to risk having them blame you for pointing out their deficiencies. Many leaders, who struggle, many leaders who struggle with this will try to convince themselves that their reluctance is a product of their kindness. They just don't want to make people feel bad. But an honest reassessment of their motivation will allow them to admit that they are the ones who don't want to feel bad. There's nothing noble about withholding information that can help people improve. And that applies to the way we deal with one another as Christians. If it's for the good of the offender, if it's for the good of our relationship with him, if it's for the good of the church and for the name and the glory of Christ, then love demands that we go and talk to them about it, no matter how they may respond. And Jesus says at that point, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And there's almost a celebratory tone to that. If you go to him and talk about sin, he says, you're right, I was wrong. And I'm sure you've experienced this. If you've been in the church very long at all, you've experienced this. It's hard, it's, it's dying to self to go and talk to them because you really don't want to do it, you're fearful of it, but you do it because it's a loving thing to do. And they respond graciously and they say, you know, you're really right, thank you for pointing it out. I, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. He says, you've gained your brother. You've won, celebrate. Basically, he's saying here, if he listens, if your brother or sister listens and repents, then skip the next three steps and proceed directly to verse 22, where he says, Jesus says, forgive him 70 times 7. In other words, an infinite amount of times. Because he says, he goes on later to say, forgive as you've been forgiven. If he confesses, you forgive. That's your only option because of what Christ has done for you. But, Jesus says, if he does not listen, Now, let me point out here that Jesus probably doesn't mean after one conversation. (laughs) He probably doesn't mean you're one and done. You know, okay, I had this awkward conversation. He didn't respond well. Okay, my hands are clean. You know, I'm done with this. I can move on to the next step. It really depends on the situation. depends on the person's response. It probably means going to them more than once. But you need to get to the place where you feel, okay, they're really not listening. This is really not progressing. Something more needs to be done. So Jesus gives the fourth step in our process, his second step he mentions here, which is to take one or two others along with you. Take one or two others along with you. This is fairly simple, fairly straightforward, but let me give you this caution. Don't go out and look for one or two others that are on your team. Don't go out and look for one of those two or two other people you tend to gossip to because they're going to side with you and they're going to be favorable to your side of the equation. Don't make that your criteria. Don't go and gang up on this poor sinner. It's best if you go and find someone who is godly, spiritually mature, wise, humble. The characteristics look for is somebody who has godliness, wisdom, maturity, discretion, And to think about somebody that's going to be well-received by the offender. Somebody that they respect. Somebody that they they have a relationship with. 
Because again, your focus is on what's best for them, not what's best for you. And then once you've done that, again, Jesus would say, if they listen to the two or three of you, you've gained your brother, celebrate. But what if he doesn't listen? Well, that means that you have two or three witnesses. The old biblical law said you have to have two or three witnesses. Well, now you've got two or three witnesses to go and take it to the court of the church. Not the court in the world, but the court of the church, which is the elders of the local church. Take it to the church. It says, tell it to the church. In verse 17, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That doesn't mean you stand up in the middle of a worship service like this and say, I have a public announcement I'd like to make. That's not what he's saying. In the context, he, mentioned, he immediately mentions the authority of the church, talking about the, the authority to bind and loose. That's the authority that was given to the apostles. It was given ultimately to the eldership of the church. You take it to the authorities in the church. Discreetly take it to them. Not everyone, anyone else, but take it to the leaders. If this sinner, this brother or sister who claims to be a Christian has sinned against you, is a member of your own church, that's fairly simple and straightforward. You go to your elders. If they're a member of another church, then you probably should consult with an elder or, or two. And hopefully, when you think of a godly, mature, spiritually wise person to take with you the first time, you've already talked to the elders anyway. But take the, you know, consult with them, but then go to the, the leadership of that person's church and let them deal with it. It's their responsibility to look into it. First of all, to, to talk with them, to investigate to a certain degree, to find out whether the sin that, that, that's being dealt with here is, is that your perspective is correct on it. They, have, they need to discern that for themselves. But if they do, they'll confront the sinner. And then again, if he listens and repents, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen even to the elders of the church, then the next step in the church discipline process is initiated. In our understanding of it, we suspend if a person's unwilling to respond to the repeated, and we're not talking about a one or two, two and done thing here either. We're talking about the session, working with them over a period of time and coming back to them again and again. But if, if they're becoming hardened and they're not repenting, then you suspend them from the sacraments and you suspend their membership. They don't have the privileges of membership for a while. And that's, that's a serious warning because the very next step is, as Jesus says here, treat them as an unbeliever. Treat them as an unbeliever. Where that's the decision for the, for the elders to make. That they are so unrepentant and so hardened in their unrepentance that the church leadership has said, you may profess to be a believer. You may adamantly profess to be a believer, but your life is contradicting that because you are unwilling to repent of your sin. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And obviously he means an unrepentant tax collector, because Matthew was a tax collector. So he's obviously talking about an unrepentant, unbelieving tax collector. In other words, treat them like somebody outside the church. Treat them like they're not a brother or a sister in Christ. That's what excommunication is. It's the withdrawal of the privileges of membership, and the epitome of the privilege of membership is to gather around the table and to receive the grace of the Lord's Supper. So they're excommunicated. Now, this doesn't mean shunning like the old Amish practice of shunning. I don't think so. Not the way the Bible talks about it. I think it does mean more than just saying you can't come to the Lord's table. It means you treat that person like you would treat an unrepentant unbeliever. And you have a lot of those in your life, don't you? A lot of people you deal with that are unrepentant unbelievers. That's how you treat them. You don't treat them like a brother or sister because they're not acting like a brother or sister. And the church has declared that their life is denying their profession. As a matter of fact, scriptures talk about it in several places. You're to love 
that person. And you're to evangelize that person, call them to Christ in any way possible. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul talks about this process and he describes it this way. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So in that sense, you still treat him like a brother in the sense that this is a brother who's gone astray. This is a brother who's acting like an unbeliever. You warn him. You love him. And seek to draw him and point him to Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. You get another emphasis of the purpose of church discipline there, of excommunication, is to say to everybody in the church who is walking in faith, to say, listen, you're accountable just like that person is. If you decide to turn your back on the Lord and go your own way and go into unrepentant sin, that will be your fate as well. So it's a warning. That's why it's good for the purity of the church, that we understand that we're going to hold each other accountable. The world doesn't understand that concept. Matter of fact, the world despises the concept that we would hold each other accountable for the way we live our lives. But how unloving it is to see a brother or sister in Christ walking into damaging, destructive sin and not hold him accountable for it, not talk to him about it, not warn him, and not call him to repentance. It's the loving thing to do. And Paul, when he talks about this kind of even the ultimate, final, last resort church discipline, he says even that step, even though it is for the glory and the reputation of Jesus Christ and of the church, and it's for the good of the unity and the purity of the church, and it's good for your relationship with the other believers, but ultimately he says it's also for that unrepentant unbeliever in spite of his attitude because he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, verse 5, he's talking about one particular man that needs to be disciplined. And he says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved. So even excommunication, as harsh as that sounds to the world, the purpose of it is to save this unrepentant, confessing believer. Bottom line, the greatest threat to the supernatural, spirit-filled fellowship of the church as a whole and of this church in particular is not false teaching, as serious as that threat is. It's not persecution, as serious as that threat is. The greatest threat to this fellowship of believers is not dealing with the sin in our midst, not holding one another accountable, of allowing sin to go unconfessed, Think of Achan when he hid the spoils from Jericho. How God dealt with that harshly to get this message across. Is it to love one another? We've got to hold each other accountable in a loving, humble, gospel centered way. God says to all of us, You shall be holy, for I am holy. But understand that the pursuit of holiness is not an individual, private affair just between you and God. We are all one body. We belong to one another. We are all in Christ together. And so when you fall into unrepentant sin, you harm me. And when I fall into unrepentant sin, I harm you. And we all bring disrepute upon the name of Christ and his church. We must seek to gain our brother or gain our sister and protect our fellowship. Paul says in Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And he goes on to say, listen to this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
that's your responsibility. That's not just the elder's responsibility. It's your responsibility, every one of you that's a part of a Christian fellowship, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If you're a member of Oakwood Presbyterian Church, then you've taken all five vows that the PCA requires that you take to be a member of this church. You remember what number five is? Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? You took that vow if you're a member. And so what we're talking about here in Matthew 18, you've taken a vow to pursue in your relationships because church discipline doesn't start when charges are brought before the elders. Church discipline starts when a brother needs to go to another brother or a sister needs to go to another sister and say, you're in sin, what can I do to help? Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. You can't create peace by yourself. It takes two to tango. It takes a body to create peace in the church. But what the Lord requires of you is to do what you can do to confront your brother or sister with their sin and to be at peace with them and leave the Spirit to work on the rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for our brothers and sisters. Thank you that we can have confidence that if we were to become so lost, that we were to become so off track and in the dark and following the ways of this world, that we would be bringing disrepute upon the name of Christ, bringing shame upon the church, and breaking and destroying relationships within the church. That, Lord, we thank you that we have your word to guide us and we have our brothers and sisters in Christ to to love us enough to call us to be accountable. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to take that responsibility seriously. Give us courage. But, Lord, bleed out of us all the pride that would make us do it for the wrong reasons. Teach us true humility so that we can do all of this in the spirit of gentleness as your word requires of us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.